Oh, hi, I'm Trace. And I'm Joe. Dearest listeners, you've learned so much about us over the last year, and we want to know more about you. So we've got a survey that will take you less than five minutes to complete. But Joe, aren't surveys boring? Yes, they are, Trace. But as an added incentive, anyone who fills out the survey will be automatically entered for a chance to win the opportunity to pick a film for one of our episodes being released in 2020. What?! Madness! When will that episode be released? The first quarter of the year. Well, that's super neat. So yes, listeners, to take the survey, just head on over to bit.ly slash horrorqueers. That is B-I-T dot L-Y slash horrorqueers. And if you don't know what that means, you know, just check the link in the show notes. Or on the Horrorqueers Facebook page. Or check our Twitter profiles. Yeah, we'll have it everywhere. And just like Cinderella at her fancy-ass ball, there is a time limit on how long the survey is open. You've got until the end of the month to participate, so get to it before it's too late. And now... Back to the show. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. to horror queers we're talking pvc miniskirts we're talking fern mayo and we're talking about the very picture of teenage perfection obliterated by perversion i'm joe and i'm trace and i'm feeling really peachy fucking keen well that is great courtney i mean trace uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we're talking about jawbreaker we are talking about jawbreaker and listener i realize listener like we have one listener is that the Just case the only one Just hello one. to that one person out there <laughs> we love you listeners as we mentioned at the end of our episode last week on alien covenant that was last week right yeah that was it sure was yeah yes it was i already forgot what happened <laughs> <laughs> i think that's called repression it is also about how forgettable that movie is womp womp but as we mentioned at the end of that episode, it, this is not a typical choice. I think we're going against our normal M.O. of what we cover on this podcast. But fuck it. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think, is this really that far out of the realm? It reminds me a little bit of Swim Fan. I think Swim Fan is a bit more of a traditional thriller slash horror film. And this one is like a horror comedy with thriller killer elements well i was doing research i mean just on the film just to see like what we could glean on it because obviously jawbreaker has become a big it's a big fucking deal yeah i mean it's a big cult film and i mean like it will get in the reception like kind of like what happened when it was released in a bit but i saw a quote from darren stein the director i'm sorry the writer director where he actually conceived this as a horror film and it wasn't until he started writing it that he was like oh this is a dark comedy <laughs> yeah, he started writing the dialogue and was like, hmm, my inner bitch says this is a comedy. Well, and, and that's the thing. Yeah, his 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 inner and outer and whatever gay man just screamed, nope, let's make it funny. And I do wonder what this would have looked like as a horror film, but maybe we can play that as a little mini game later. I don't know. So I guess we'll just jump right the fuck in. Honestly, after watching this the other day, I, I mean, I, I already say fuck a lot in my everyday like discourse but after hearing rose mcgowan speak for 87 minutes i said fuck a lot more <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't help watching this film and feeling like you channel her or she is your spirit animal because 
there's a lot of you in her. I don't know if I'm offended by that or <laughs> honored by that. Uh, it's an absolute honor, obviously. I wish I had her art of bitchery down to a T, just like she does. But actually, like before, okay, when did you see this movie? So I saw this. This came out in my last year of high school before I started university. And I saw it in the theaters. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Because I was, like, very much on board with all things teen-centric at the time because I was in high school. So I was like, yeah, I'm seeing all these movies. So I definitely saw Can't Hardly Wait, and I definitely saw this movie. Ooh, I definitely want to talk about Can't Hardly Wait because Rosa McGowan has some choice things to say about that movie. <laughs> yeah, that's why I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, we probably found all the same quotes in our research today. Well, I'm just shocked that you saw it in theaters considering it was only in theaters for three weeks. Yeah, it was like a blink and you miss it. It very much felt the same as Drop Dead Gorgeous where it had yeah. a irreverent you know very kind of un-pc vibe going for it and it was yeah it was there and then it was gone they're the same year right because isn't drive the gorgeous 99 as well it is man 99 was i know (laughs) fucking year for film and not just like oh the matrix oh the sixth sense like there's a lot of really good smaller films that came out in 99. Well, also, it was uh, the year of the teen film. I saw a statistic that was like there were 15 teen films that came to theaters in 1999. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. And I, I feel like, I, I mean, like, I, oh, God. Okay, I didn't do research on this, but I'm going to say, like, She's All That was one of them. Obviously, 100%. this is one of them. Yep. Drive Dead Gorgeous. What are some other, like, like i think get over it was like 2000 there's whatever it takes i'm like i'm like scratching the bottom of the barrel with those two but (laughs) i i got them at blockbuster when they came on vhs i will not do any kind of standing for whatever it takes that is not good but i secretly love get over it a whole fucking lot it get over it's the one with kirsten dunst right it is, and it's where they're putting on a Midsummer New Year's Rockin' Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Cisco's in that one too, right? He is. He's terrible, but he's really just there to dance. I, I said, then wait, what is whatever it takes? That's James Franco. It's James Franco, and the reason that people confuse it is because that guy, shit, what's his name? Ugh, he was in Mandy Moore, Walk to Remember. Oh, Shane West. Yeah, he's in both of them. Oh my god, you need to go watch Nikita. He's really good in Nikita. With Devin Sawa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, yes, but... Oh, <laughs> Idle Hands was 19... 19- no, maybe... Okay, you know what? I'm not going to play this guessing game. It's fine. Um, it was 99. Ni- yeah. 1999, big year for mm-hmm. teen movies. Also for teen horror, too. I mean, I guess like, like it's like your post-Scream era. It's where they figured out they could make money off teens again. Oh, I guess I should mention this. So we're also covering this... Okay. I... I'm going to call it out and just, you know, be a bitch um, in the wow. spirit of Courtney Shame. So, no, no, no. <laughs> I, we actually did have another movie in this time slot, uh, but we got an e- a press email about the 20th anniversary Blu-ray of Jawbreaker that's coming out, um, like, the day after or the week of this episode dropping. And because the film turned 20 back in February and we were like, fuck yeah, also the new Blu-ray is having a, a, a the only new special feature on it is a commentary with Darren Stein, the director, and Julie Benz, and Rebecca mm-hmm. Gayhart, and Judy Greer. And... Yeah. I was super fucking excited. That's reason enough to like speed out and get it because yeah, like holy fuck, hearing those three and Darren Stein, of course, as well. But oh yeah, absolutely. And lo and behold, though, uh, not only was the Blu-ray delayed, but we didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, so, that's basically the long and short of it. We wanted to be able to report back on like all the juicy shit they say in the commentary, but then we didn't get a copy. So yeah. Oops. So I, mean, I think by the time this episode comes out, hopefully I will have my copy. So if you really want to know more about it, um, you can 
follow me on Twitter at Trace Thurman. Uh, Joe will not have his because they don't ship to Canada. <laughs> Yeah, I would like to file a civil lawsuit. Uh, this is a human rights violation, especially as a gay man. This is just unacceptable. I know. Darren Stein, <laughs> if you're listening, please ship a copy of the Jawbreaker 20th Anniversary Blu-ray to Canada. Yes. D- just d- all of Canada. It's just Canada. I'll pick it up. <laughs> just like our one listener. Um, <laughs> but yes, so this movie came out February 19th, 1999. Um, so Blu-ray is a little late to the party, um, but that's fine. I wonder if they wanted to have it like timed perfectly and it was just like oh physical media doesn't work that way because it does seem suspicious right do you think they just forgot about it and then like tristar or sony was looking through their catalog and they were like huh jawbreaker turned <laughs> 20 back in that one didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they're thinking hey it's almost the christmas season what does every gay want under the tree <laughs> the blu-ray of jawbreaker well here's the thing i would be fucking happy to get this one under the tree folks I mean, I'd be fucking happy to get it at all. Apparently, it doesn't come to Canada. So. Well, I already have a cock sock from our Chris episode on your Christmas list. So we'll yes. add cock socks and the Jawbreaker 20th anniversary Blu-ray. Jesus, I'm like poppers away from like the best night ever. Oh my god, but are poppers illegal in Canada? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, I'll smuggle some poppers in your cock sock. So. Sounds good. Okay. Really good. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, oh God, I'm dying to listen to the commentary. I'm not because I think it's going to be juicy, but just because I like the cast commentaries, as we discussed before, because it just feels like you're in the room with them. And hopefully, unless they do that thing in commentaries where they record them all separately and then like edit their audio together. Oh, did they do that? Yes, they've totally. Uh, the, all right, this is a deep cut, but um, Terminator 3, Claire Danes, is very much not in the same room as I want to say Arnold Schwarzenegger and the director Jonathan Mostow. So hmm. her quotes like just come in every now and then when there's silence. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about how strongly feminist that is like, well i mean I i'm think, sure she was busy or yeah busy I, I think it was a scheduling but... thing i think it's what happened but, but anyway still. yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so shitty right claire do you have anything to say yeah and then so that claire? does happen claire <laughs> i liked you in terminator 3 so anyway claire, yeah yeah february 1999 released by columbia tristar um and with a budget of three and a half million dollars and so this is where we also i guess we can bring up um can't hardly wait now because this movie was given a budget meant for a direct-to-video movie. It wasn't mm-hmm. given your standard theatrical budget, whereas, um, and clearly, I don't want to say it sounded like they were bitter about it, but... Um, Rose oh, McGowan, I think Rose McGowan sounded <laughs> fucking bitter about it. <laughs> she was, because yeah, they, they basically... She's, I, I don't know why this is the case. She said they had a choice between giving more money to Jawbreaker or to Can't Hardly Wait, and they chose Can't Hardly Wait. And so they gave that one a $10 million budget, and, you know, that got a bit bigger release in theaters. But, of course, you know, Rose McGowan's like, well, look which one has more of a a cult following and it's made an impact on the world, which I... Yeah, I mm, mean, I would argue both films have withstood the test of time. But, yeah, if you want to talk about a larger cultural footprint, Jawbreaker probably has a more devoted fan base. Like, you don't hear a lot of people talking about Can't Hardly Wait these days. No. Okay, devoted because the gays are very passionate and vocal on social media. Well, and because this film is a, like, the fashion in this film is iconic. Well, yeah, it it totally is. I think, but this, I feel like I watched this on, it was this and Can't Hardly Wait actually both aired on USA. Um, Do y'all have USA in Canada? Is that like an oxymoron? Uh, we get it as, like, an import channel. Okay. Well, I watched both of these on USA, and that's, so that's when I first watched Jawbreaker. Like, I, that's how I knew what it was. Um, and I feel like it played all the time. 
all the time. And maybe it was the 87 minute runtime, so it was like, cool, we can stretch this to two hours with a bunch of commercials, and that's mm-hmm. what did it. Yeah, it's this, and then don't tell mom the babysitter's dead, and then this. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> listeners, let's do a nostalgia one. Tell us the, t- the movies that you watched all the time on TV. Like, I, I think I saw Jawbreaker at least like 10 times in high school, like just on TV. That is so funny, because I can't imagine that it escaped without very heavy language censoring. Oh yeah, absolutely. Jawbreaker uh, opened. Yes. <laughs> it opened in the number thirteen slot. Its opening weekend, and it made one point six million dollars. It was in theaters for three weeks and went on to gross three point one million dollars. This movie was a bomb. Okay, so here is the thing, though, because the way it's presented in film circles as well as to the actresses, everybody talks about how it wasn't released properly like it wasn't given a wide release it wasn't marketed properly and it was almost like they act as though it was doomed to fail i don't think they did any marketing for it i think that was the quote that i found that was like they didn't do any marketing because they were doing all the marketing on can't hardly wait but if you assume that they had planned to almost like if the intention was really to just give it an exhibition in a couple of theaters and then put it onto home video then the fact that it didn't make money it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, I don't know that the studio ever planned for it to succeed in theaters because they knew the money would be made on video. So it's a weird case of like, like, how do we choose to remember this? Because yeah, the money, like the figures look bad. But if you think about the fact that they were like, oh, well, we always planned on making money on video, then it doesn't matter that it didn't do well in theaters. Right. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about the movie industry and the business side of it to like, really I mean they yeah, they gave it the budget yeah but I, see then I'm wondering though if they didn't have any faith in it in general although again I'm just pulling quotes here when Darren Stein pitched it uh they basically said yeah we'll finance it if you can get either Natalie Portman Kate Winslet or Rose McGowan and when he delivered Rose McGowan they were like yeah let's do it and so it's like well they must have had I mean well you still need a name person to sell your movie regardless of whether it's theatrical or video but also who was Natalie Portman going to play who did they imagine she was going to play in this movie? Surely Fucking Julie. Julie. Right? Yeah. Yawn fest. Can you imagine casting <laughs> Natalie Portman and then being like, we're going to give you the most boring role in this movie? I, let, but I don't think... But she wasn't a thing, really. Like, like, not a huge thing at this point. Like, honestly, the outlier there is Kate Winslet, because this is after Titanic. So it's like, what made them think Kate Winslet would even be an option for this. Now, Rose McGowan's coming off of Doom Generation and Scream. Although Scream never gets referenced when they talk about, like, Darren Stein's like, yeah, I saw her in the Doom Generation. You're like, but didn't you see Scream in 1996? Like, that has always confused me. Like, to me, her big breakout, yes, she shines in Doom Generation, but, like, Scream is where she makes her big mark. It's so funny. So my introduction to Rose McGowan was on Charmed, um, because I, I that started in, I think, 98. Um, and obviously I hadn't seen Scream yet, but I remember, um, but, oh, but she didn't go on until season four, because, you know, Shannon Doherty's a bitch. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, because I was, like, really into like, reading TV Guide at the time, and so... In between seasons, like, you know, they like basically season three ends and it's like, oh, Prue, like, gets thrown out a window and, like, whatever. But, like, you don't know. And I think it was up in the Jesus. air if, like, uh, she was going to, like, come back or not. And right. I remember reading a TV guide. They were like, okay, so, yeah, Shannon is out. They're, they have now cast Rose McGowan, most memorably known for being crushed by a garage door in Scream. So... And that's, like, the exact quote. <laughs> and so I knew that. Like, And so I just, like, so when I see her in... Um, 
Charmed, I, I, just, I just imagined her. Without ever having seen Scream, I just imagined her being crushed by a garage door. So when I finally saw Scream, I was like, oh, I get That's it. That's what it looks like. Did you imagine her lying down and it just crushes her while she's on the ground? Yes, that's exactly what I thought happened. When, okay. obviously, the death scene that we get in Scream is way better than that. Even though it's unrealistic. But I wanted to back to this. So do, hey, do you think maybe the studio had a different financial plan to, based on which actress he got? Like, if it's Kate Winslet, we're going to give it this much money. If it's Rose McGowan, we're going to give it this much money. If it's Natalie Portman, it's going to be this much money. It's entirely possible because at that point, they... I mean, I imagine he would have been like, here's my pitch. Give me X amount of money. And they were probably like, okay, we'll give you money if you get said actress. So it might have... I don't know if they would have given him more money to make the film, but they probably would have reconsidered whether or not they would market it or release it in more theaters. Also worth noting, Natalie Portman did a little film called Star Wars in 1999. Oh, shit. That is the same year. Well, because, like, she had done The Professional when she was a kid, but had mm-hmm. she really done much, like, to be really noticed between 1999? Ooh, when was that movie Where the Heart Is with the Walmart? Oh, that's 2000. Sorry. I like the Walmart Baby movie. <laughs> that has come up on my other podcast, and we could not remember what year it was either. Brenna was like, are you sure you didn't make this movie up? No, because Soccer Channing gets killed by a tornado in that movie. Oh, my God. Movies. I love I them. I love them. It's such a weird little movie. Um... Okay, so moving on to reception, though, from critics and audiences. Um, critics okay. hated, hated this movie. It. Shocker. Yeah. You, uh, 11% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 3.4 out of 10. Ebert gave it, like, one and a half stars and, like, panned the fuck out of it, which Darren Stein has gone on record as being, like, that one stung the most considering he wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, <laughs> which is also <laughs> trashy as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Never seen it, have you? No, um, I, it's, it's, I've never seen either one, actually, but I, I, for some reason, I thought Valley of the Dolls was, like, a very highly regarded, because my dad talked about it a lot when I was growing up, but, um, it's not. Oh, really? I thought the first one was good, and the second one, the one that Ebert wrote, is, like, the trashy shit one. From what I gather, the first one was a commercial success, but it was not well-reviewed. yeah now i'm sure yes the second one is worse quote-unquote and like trashier quote-unquote but from what i gather they're both pretty trashy fair enough okay audience score and again like like we're talking about 1999 you know like rotten tomatoes wasn't really around then so it's like i don't know but uh audiences give it 55 percent with an average score of 6.76 out of 10 not bad yeah it's not bad i mean i think well, actually, no. So on the Metacritic, here we go. So critics is 22 out of 100. Makes sense. Ooh. User score of 86 out of 100. <laughs> there we see the contemporary audiences and the fan, the cult fan audience who have uh, embraced this and kept it alive for the last 20 years. But that's what I so That's You say, okay, the studio thought that it would be a better hit on home video. Maybe. I just can't. I mean, it was a different market back then. I actually know because now, because really now, streaming is like the direct DVD, but like streaming is like more prestige. I, I, I mm. prestige in quotes. Then, mm. I mean, again, we have fucking Martin Scorsese going to Netflix. You know? Oh, that's just because Netflix threw a shit ton of money at him. Anyway, this movie was a hit <laughs> on on DVD, uh, on VHS rentals, and TV. Like it, it gained an enormous cult following. Yes, more loyal and uh, furious than Can't Hardly Wait. But again, I would argue this entire era of films, like each of them has their own respective fan bases. It's just the gays co-opted Jawbreaker. I 100% support that assertion. I mean, all you have to do is like post that you're watching it or do like a little gif or something and like people fall all over themselves to like talk about their favorite line. So 
We've got a queer filmmaker and a queer writer in Darren Stein here. Um, I haven't seen the film he did before this called Sparkler, which I had never heard of, but has Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jamie Kennedy in it. And apparently it is like a gay movie. Hmm. I mean, I hate saying that, you know, a gay movie. It's like just like it's like really pegging it. Uh, well, if it's a. Yeah. OK, maybe some semantics are are important here then. I've always felt like if a film is explicitly made where like a gay love story or like the like the gay storyline is the front and center narrative piece, then mm-hmm. it's kind of okay to talk about it as like a gay film. It's when people say like, oh, Jawbreaker, it's a big gay film. And you're like, there's literally no gay characters in this. We can debate this. Um, yeah, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. But Really, like, if you're saying, oh, because Darren Stein is gay, therefore Jawbreaker is a gay movie. Like, we've used that nomenclature to justify talking about certain movies on this podcast. But that's Mm -hmm. also because we are queer film critics. And one of the things that we like to do is see if we can, like, suss out some interesting readings of films as a result. But I feel like for a lot of people, like regular people at large, they like to use that as a negative right like it's a moniker like oh this is probably just gonna play the gay film festivals or oh it's just gonna get dumped yeah. because it's some sappy gay movie so that's shit well and i i want to say like i feel like maybe the early to mid 2000s where it's a lot of straight to dvd like indie gay movies there's a lot of shit in that pile are you talking about the eating out series Trace? yeah i actually was <laughs> 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 and another gay movie. I mean, no, no shame if you like them. But no, they I mean are... they're they're very fun, but they are not good. No, I mean they're they basically exist to be like, hey, isn't it nice to have a little bit of like campy representation and maybe some boys who get topless? Uh, I think Eating Out actually has some dick in it too, but I don't think we actually get any Eating Out in the movie, which is a real cock tease for me. I mean, have you ever seen Eating Out in a movie that was not NC seventeen? Um. I don't know what for some reason my mind goes straight to Queers Full with this TV show because there's rimming in the first episode of the American version at least. Right. I think the only one that I can think of is Short Bus, but yeah, that I think does I think that is NC seventeen. <laughs> yes, because that's actual like unsimulated sex. Yes. Though I Good will movie. never forget, it was the first time I ever saw someone sing the national anthem into another person's butt. Yep. And if you have not seen Short Bus. Do yourself a favor, because that movie is unabashedly amazing, and not just because it has unsimulated sex in it. And But to be clear, there is a lot of unsimulated sex, and there is a lot of penises and cum. Yeah, it's the best of both fucking worlds, and we're back to Jawbreaker. Anyway, uh, before we go into your plot summary, though, I do want to, uh, I'm going to plug Mr. Stein, because his... Oh, wow, does he know? <laughs> oh my god, I didn't, I'm not going to peg Mr. Stein, I'm going to plug <laughs> Mr. Stein. No, 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 um, he's only done, like, one major film since this, uh, which is GBF, mm-hmm. uh, which stands for Gay Best Friend. I know you're, like, mostly good on it, I love this movie, and I was actually shocked to find out that he didn't write it, he only directed it. Oh, really? Yes. it feels like very much like his voice, doesn't it? It does feel like his voice. It doesn't have the so, same... Mm, um, it's not as witty, let's say that. Yeah, no, it's not as witty. Or it, it, Also, the, the energy is a bit different, because it's, it's more of a quote-unquote typical teen comedy, but it, it has a heart, whereas Jawbreaker has a black pile of tar. 
<laughs> Which is why I prefer Jawbreaker. No, for sure. But if you've never seen GBF, please go out there and watch it. It has the most adorable lead actor that Michael J. Willett, I think is his name. Of the late Faking It, which was also a bit of a fun series. See, I watched him on United States of Terra. He was the son's boyfriend, but I think he died oh. in the show. Oh, okay. I was like, Jesus Christ, that got dark. No, not in real life, in the show. <laughs> um, but it also has JoJo in it, which is great, and Rebecca Gayhart, and mm-hmm. Megan Mullally, and a bunch of other people. So watch that. It used to be on Netflix, but I don't think it's there anymore. But, oh, you know, okay. seek it out. Yeah, that's so, where I watched it. Joe. Yes. What's Jawbreaker about? Okay, here we go. So, Fern Mayo, Judy Greer introduces the flawless four in voiceover before we see a sleeping liz purr charlotte and oh god i'm gonna mispronounce her last name again uh, I, ayana I, I i was gonna say ayana and she's a horror queers alumni yeah. formerly appearing in the rage carry too okay right for some reason i had her pegged oh my Ooh. god how many times <laughs> are we gonna say pegged <laughs> <laughs> oh we're such dirty boys so, can you peg a woman because isn't it just anal sex at that point I guess a woman can peg a woman. A man can't peg a woman. Because a man pegs a woman, it's just fucking. Well, no, because they can I feel like we on. need people to weigh in on this. Yeah, can y'all weigh in on this? I don't know. I mean, I, sorry, if I sound ignorant, I don't mean to. No, I mean, these are important things. We need clarity. I thought that she was the girlfriend in Cursed. Is she? Who no, that? absolutely not. No, okay. <laughs> I mean, yes, for sure, though, she's in the Rage Kick. I mean, Judy Greer <laughs> is in Cursed. Maybe that's it. Yeah, that's probably what you were getting crossed over. <laughs> oh, I'm probably just an idiot. <laughs> probably so. <laughs> yeah, okay. So we see Liz Purr, and she is attacked in bed on the morning of her 17th birthday. Her attackers are the other members of this clique. Julie, Rebecca Gayhart, Marcy, Julie Benz, and ringleader Courtney, Rose McGowan. Did you read the stat? The stat, I don't know, the factoid, how Rachel Lee Cook was cast as Julie before, like, the other girls were cast. And then when they all came in, she didn't have the same chemistry with them. So they basically were like, we're going to cast Rebecca Gayhart instead. Yeah, to be honest, I think it's absolutely the right decision. I can't picture Rachel Lee Cook in this role, even though Julie is just, like, the sweetheart girl. Uh, it just doesn't, like, I can't imagine that at all. What what happened to Rachel Lee Cook? Where is she? Uh, she does some Hallmark Christmas movies now. Oh my god, that's where everyone goes. I mean, good for mm-hmm. her, like, it's a living, mm-hmm. but, you Oh, know. it's a good fucking living. Yeah. <laughs> if, Jesus if you're man. a Christian white lady, like, you're buying second houses in the Caymans with that Hallmark Christmas money. <laughs> or paying uh, to get your kids into college illegally. <gasps> what? <gasps> I can't believe you went there. Oh my god. Um, this okay, is not wait. a political podcast, Trace. I know. Let's talk about these girls, though. <laughs> okay. So, Julie Benz, coming off of Buffy, had mm-hmm. she done really anything before this? No. Okay. Um, no, I she was her. like the discovery, I think, for this. Well, I, aside from Judy Greer. I love her in this yeah. movie. I think She's amazing. Julie Benz. Actually, really. They're all great. It's unfortunate because Rebecca Gayhart's kind of the only, but it's it's not her fault. <laughs> Protagonist feel, syndrome. Yeah, I, it really is, right? Her and Zach are like the most boring people I ever. Always forget Zach is in this movie, like because he, he they 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 kind of pair up. Like I feel like more than halfway into this film, like it's mm-hmm, not even a mm-hmm. thing. And, well, and so full disclosure. Out of the three Mean Girls movies, which is, to be clear, Heather's, this, and Mean Girls, this is probably my least favorite because 
even though I think it's very fun. I, I mean, I, I use that lovingly. Like, I love this movie. I think it's great. But okay. I think while it has more of, of a visual style to it, I don't know if it's the length that hurts it or if it's trying to do so much in such little time. But, like, it it does feel thin or sparse mm. to me compared to, like, Mean Girls and Heather's, where I feel like I feel like Heather's was a bit smarter. And Mean Girls, while definitely more... I don't want to say generic, but, like, more audience-friendly, maybe? It's, like, studio-made, kind of. Yeah. But I think that's kind of part of the appeal of this movie, too, and why people grasp onto it. Well, I'm sorry. I guess I'm, I'm cutting your plot summary. No, not at all. I mean, I would agree with you, if except I actually prefer this to Heather's Sacrilege. Really? Sacrilege. There's just something about Heather's that just doesn't always work for me. I like the beginning, and then it kind of loses me as the movie proceeds. Mm-hmm. I think partially because I like the idea of the two of them killing off the socialites. And then when, you know, when one other writer starts to realize, oh, JD's like a fucking asshole and he's the real villain yeah. of the movie. I'm like, oh, but it's not fun anymore. Yeah, no, because then they like, try to make a I like fun. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, this movie was well, one of the big criticisms of Jawbreaker was it's ripping off Heathers. And, and of course, it's like, well, it's homaging Heathers. But other mm-hmm. than like, you know three bitchy girls exit and like then like you know they kill someone there's not really a lot of like of similarities to it i think it's just because the murders happen relatively early in the film and they're popular girls right i guess it's only one murder though oh no i know it's it's like the easiest slash laziest criticism that you can lob at this film is that like oh it's just doing what others did it's like yeah plenty of movies do what other movies do this movie is also referencing like all the john hughes films but you don't see that lauded as a criticism against well but then also i mean there's an interview somewhere with darren stein where he does he he tastefully criticizes mean girls for ripping off jawbreaker Mm -hmm. which i also don't like because i'm like i don't either dude you're just you're like to each generation there is a bitchy high school girl movie i mean i'm sure it's because mean girls was a cultural phenomenon with everybody and it made like 80 million dollars yeah but you know but i i get it i get it oh sure i mean i think one of the things is like you like when you see people doing the press junket and everybody's like oh so this movie's like heathers and nobody says oh this movie like to mean girls oh you're also you're like Heather's, but also Jawbreaker. Like right. it's just one of those things where Jawbreaker didn't ascend to the same kind of cultural status that Heather's and to a certain extent Mean Girls have. Even though in certain circles, I think a lot of people would say, "Oh, that's my favorite of the three. But what I uh, so hey, so would we? Because we wouldn't call Mean Girls a cult film, obviously, because that was like it's too big no, it's to be too a cult popular. Film. <laughs> well, but Heather's was always considered a cult film, but honestly, I feel like that's too popular to not even be considered a cult film. Whereas I feel like Jawbreaker fits the mold a little bit more if you're talking about a cult film. Yes, it's by far the best example of it. I think there's still a lot of people who have maybe only heard of Heather's but haven't seen it. So that's maybe that's why true. some people hang on to it. But yeah, it's like... You mean like when some like a millennial watches Heather's and says it's problematic in its depiction of like everything? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Stupid. Well, no, it's... Okay, this is where it's important to recognize that people don't always do the work to contextualize a historical film and yes unfortunately i'm talking about a film from the 80s as a historical film yeah because <laughs> it is like 30 years now people we gotta accept that well we can maybe talk about that with this movie too because even though it's 99 and made by a gay man uh we can maybe talk about 
the depictions. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, yeah, the end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> we're still in the opening scene. That's fine. <laughs> Alas, like all the best horror films, the opening prank turns tragic when Liz accidentally asphyxiates on a jawbreaker in the trunk of Courtney's car. <laughs> yeah, the makeup effects of the jawbreaker in her throat is really good. Well, it's funny, too, because you you implicitly know that something is going to go wrong with this prank, but I don't think you assume that it will be in her fucking throat. Like, I always just assume that she'll, like, she won't have been able to breathe, but not because it went, like, halfway down. And when you think, it's actually quite horrifying. Oh my god, it's terrifying. That jawbreaker is so fucking big. It's... (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, I, I... I, Sorry, I'm not a size queen like you. I, I looked at it in horror. <laughs> I love big things. But I also like small things. Sure. Continue. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that for later. Yeah. So cue the opening credits, which details the factory production of Jawbreakers. Uh, love this. It's great. I mean, I I often miss opening credit sequences. They're, they're much less rare on television nowadays, but something like this where it's obviously just doing its job of allowing you to understand who was working on the film and who stars in it, but it's kind of fascinating to also watch how the whole process comes together. And if you think about the way the film is designed in terms of colors and costumes and even editing, this, this opening credit sequence is actually doing a lot to give you a sense of what the film is going to be. I was actually very surprised in reading some reviews for this film, like how pe- how they didn't appreciate the style on display, both in terms of the editing, the visual palette, the color palette, especially the fucking, as you mentioned, the outfits, and even the sound design, to, which is obviously all of it's very intentional. And I feel like yeah. critics thought it was just poor filmmaking when it's like, no. It's super fucking savvy filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's stupid. I think you could argue that... At times, it feels like Darren Sign is throwing everything that he's got into this. Like, there's crazy editing, there's crazy sound effects, you know, the costuming is out of this world. I think some people could look at it and be like, oh, it's all just a bit much, isn't it? But I think that's one of the things that goes away after our first time watch. I mean, I if you're watching this movie, and I think the moment that I, when I first saw it, that I was like, oh, this is what we're doing, is whenever... The guy, whatever his name is, wags his tongue at Rose McGowan, mm-hmm. and it has <laughs> a, yeah, that. Once that happens, if you don't know what movie you're watching or what kind of movie this is trying to be, I don't know what to say to you. Maybe you need to appreciate what camp is. Yeah, right? Why didn't we do this in <laughs> camp month? I don't know. Oh, because we, we didn't have, have a Blu-ray. Wow. Okay. Claws are out. Sorry. Okay, so in addition to the jawbreakers, we also get a collage of pictures of the girls, and this is all set to the iconic tune Volcano Girls by Veruca Salt, which doesn't mean anything to you because you're not a music person, Mm -hmm. but Veruca Salt was like the rock girl group of the late 90s. They didn't have a ton of singles, but like this one is like an absolute banger, and it's put to maximum effect here. I think, hey, I don't know most of the music in this movie, because yeah, but it... It definitely sounds like it's from the 90s, and I'm loath to use the word iconic, but it sounds like iconic, like, 90s songs, or, like, things mm. that are memorable. I don't know. 
Well, there's at least, so I'm going to do another shout out in a minute to a different song, which is not by a famous band, or at least not famous to me, but the song itself, I literally, every time I hear it, I think of this movie because it is I know so what song good. you're talking about. Of course you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So back in the car, Courtney plots. She impersonates Liz's mother because uh, wait. Liz's parents are out of town. Impersonates in quotes. Like she doesn't <laughs> she do... makes no effort to disguise her voice. Yes. <laughs> and then and then Julie Benz is like, oh my god, you did such a good job. And I'm like, no, she didn't. <laughs> Which is the point, I'm sure. Miss Sherwood, <laughs> my daughter Liz. It's like the drag queeniest of phone calls. <laughs> and also, though, it's real dumb though, because Obviously, this is part of the undoing. Well, it almost gets her caught, but it doesn't get her caught. But it's like, this mm-hmm. is your big like hole in your plan. So like, as smart as Courtney is, because she is good at thinking on her toes, yeah, this was a real stupid decision. Also, apparently, Liz is the only person sick at school that day. Well, I mean, we don't see how big the high school is. <laughs> <laughs> when she's given the obituary over the intercom system, she's like, Liz Per, a well-known senior at this school. And it's like, what? I don't know. I mean, did something bad ever happen in your high school where you were like, I don't have a fucking clue who that was? I think this guy hung himself in his backyard, oh. um, but he was like two years older. I didn't know who he was. And they certainly didn't announce it as an obituary. Also listing the cause of death over the intercom system. Right. Yeah. Teen but suicide. Again, don't do it. Yeah, I'm obviously sorry. I, I'm not making light of this person. I didn't know him. I just I think like I just know this is something that happened. And like I had friends who were close to him. But this is not real life. No. Yeah. I mean, that there's a lot of things in this film. I think one of the reasons that some people don't love this movie is that the plotting is not its strong suit. So everything to do with the cover up for the murder and the investigation is not good and i'm pretty sure that they've all acknowledged like yeah we it doesn't really work you know even under the slightest amount of criticism but that's not the point but the movie's so over the top though that like i don't care like obviously i'm i'm mentioning it now because that's you know we're poking holes in this thing um, mm-hmm. As we analyze it, but yeah, no, it, be, a movie like this when it is so heightened, I don't care about plot holes, you know. Well, yeah, and I think at the end of the day, this movie is about these girls and their relationship to popularity. It's not about the legal proceedings of investigating a murder. Like we're not watching Law and Order, you know, Courtney Shane and High. <laughs> <laughs> Law and Law Order Jawbreaker. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Airing on USA in the fall. What's on USA now? I know they've got their own shows. Yeah, they have the shows. Like suits so wait, all the time. If we have USA, do you have a show that's just called Canada? Yes. Yes. Okay. No, that we tracks. don't. Although oh. we do have we do have the Canadian Broadcast Council, which is CBC, which is like our national television network. Oh, I don't think we have one of those because you you don't have to make content to stand against uh, the imperialism of a larger country that tries to dominate you. I don't know what you just said. So continue the plot. (laughs) Basically, we make Canadian content so that we can say this is how we're Canadian because we don't make shit like what the U.S. makes. And we pay for it out of Canadian taxes. And conservatives hate it. Wait, so your taxes pay for the film industry there? Yeah, it's just like in the U.K. 
Remember when we what? talked about it? In the Remember flesh? about In the Flesh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh my Canada God. has a similar system. So does Australia. That would be a much better use of American taxpayer dollars. Oh, people fucking hate it because oh, I'm the sure. quality of the shows are like, in quotation marks, never as good as what we can get from the US. People get very angry. Anyway. Okay, so Courtney impersonates Liz's mother and she calls in sick. The girls then strut their shit down the halls of Reagan High like everything is peachy fucking keen to Ugh. the iconic tune Yoo-Hoo by Imperial Teen. And you're right, though. Th- this song is synonymous with this scene for me. Yeah. I don't know if I've... I'm sure other movies have used it or I've heard it somewhere, but it's it's this scene. And the interesting thing is that it. I don't know if you got the impression when you were doing research on the film, but... It seemed as though this is like one of the first times that you've seen like a slow motion hallway walk in a high school film. So that's what everyone involved with this film seems to think. And nothing is coming to mind. But I find it hard to believe that this is the first one to do that. Well, I mean, I I saw in one that, that he references like he wanted to have a high school version of Reservoir Dogs. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, because you I thought it was that like, movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, tell me where the birthday card is or I'll rip your fucking ear off. <laughs> yep. Oh, man, that would have been nice. Yeah, this this movie could do with a bit more bloodletting, couldn't it? Well, I mean, had Stein gotten, like, followed through with his horror film, uh, we might have had that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's like, I think that would have been Jennifer's Body or Tragedy Girls. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I, I could totally see it as Tragedy Girls. Like, a little bit more biting than Tragedy Girls, probably. Which is saying something. But, mm-hmm. yeah, totally. Okay, so they strut their shit, and then Courtney continues to assert her dominance by insisting that they all act normal. Throughout Macbeth in English, female anatomy in biology, and stillborn chicks in home ec. When that girl fingers the stillborn Ugh. yolk, it's... Oh my god, the language in this episode. <laughs> she fingers it? She fingers the stillborn chick. Ew. Oh my god, I know. Uh, no, it's it's real gross. Uh, but yeah, no, these are fun little montages and like, you know, foreshadowing of portentions of doom and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I also love that the goth in this film, even she has like bright purple highlights. Yes. I think yeah, she's blonde with purple highlights, right? Yeah. Well, like yeah. bleach blonde. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> well, okay. Well, no. So that's the thing though. It's, it's, I don't know punk culture very well, but that's apparently what this is. It's, um, it's like punk, 90s punk. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, think about, uh, is it Return of the Living Dead? The one that's known for its like punk zombies? Yes. So this is like punk by way of gay aesthetic and Romeo and Michelle. Oh, uh, really important. Do you want to go into it? So yeah, no, um, the costume designer on this is Vicky Barrett. uh, And she actually assisted Mona May on the costumes for Clueless and Romeo and Michelle and The Wedding Singer. So so yeah, while she didn't do the costumes for those films, she was like obviously learning from the best. This is Vicky Barrett's first like outing as the as being the costume designer for a film holy shit right no that impact like, that's crazy <laughs> i see i the colors i see you know that's romeo and michelle i think mm-hmm. the style is very clueless um wedding singer doesn't really apply because that's 80s but yeah not really but yeah it's a good melding of romeo and michelle and clueless and what i actually think is really cool about the the, the wardrobe in the film is that because it's so colorful it matches like the specks of color on the jawbreaker yeah that's the intention right is it? 
Yeah, they've said it in a couple of different interviews that everything sort of starts with the jawbreaker, and then that informed the mm. color as well as the costuming. Okay, maybe I did read that, and I thought it was my own thought. That's actually called plagiarism. That is. Don't do it, <laughs> folks. It's like teen suicide. Don't do it. Um, yeah, I think we'll have more to say, maybe, about the costumes a little bit later, but uh, they're amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, at lunch, Courtney hatches a plan to get away with murder. Well, technically, it's really manslaughter, but sure. Uh, by obliterating Liz's perfect reputation with perversion. So, she decides that she's going to whip up a kinky sex involving sugary death uh, storyline. And... It, it's so convoluted. <laughs> it is so ridiculous. It's like, you can't just be like, okay, she's at home with a jawbreaker in her mouth. Bam. That's it. She's done. That's believable yeah. as it is. No, they have to, like, fake stage this rape. Mm-hmm. Oh, and my favorite bit, though, is when she, uh, Julie Benz is, like, panties on or off. Rip them. But then she, like, rips the side of them and doesn't leave a hole for the vagina. And so I'm like, well, that doesn't do any good. Yeah, unless you're meant to believe that he, like, clawed the panties over. But and that seems like a lot of work. And, yeah, I'm just imagining, like, the the body motion. So, like, get the penis through the panty hole and like curve it around to the vagina hole. I, I so don't what you're saying was. is he had a curved dick. I mean, it was Marilyn Manson. Rape. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Right. It's not really <laughs> Marilyn Manson, but yeah, this fictitious rapist. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Courtney gets so wrapped up in thinking about this, much like you just did, mm-hmm. that uh, she forgets to pick up Liz's homework. So this prompts Miss Sherwood, played by Carol Kane. Who's so good. She's so good. I wish there was a little bit more of her in this, but that's okay. I mean, there's basically no adult presence in this film outside of a couple of isolated scenes, but... That's also, I think, a talking point. So. Well, also the adults playing the four girls. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what you mean. Those 20-something girls look exactly like high school scenes. That was apparently by design, though. Like, Stein was trying to homage like movies like Grease, where they cast obviously people in their mid-20s as high schoolers. Oh, even later than that in some cases. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Stockard Channing, again. <laughs> she Wasn't she, like, in her 30s? I think so, like, late 30s. <laughs> Oh my god. So, Miss Sherwood gives Liz's homework to Fern, who happens upon the body after the other three have wrestled it back up the stairs and into bed. Now, Courtney's reaction has actually already been captured in an electronic birthday card by Julie, but that doesn't matter right now. It'll just become important later. Oh, what, we need to... <laughs> what do we call that? Like a recording greeting card? Uh, I think so. I'm not going to lie. My immediate thoughts go to Easy A because oh, that's yeah, like yeah. the big plot point about... <laughs> to this movie's credit, though, even though this is Chekhov's recording card or whatever, mm-hmm. um, I will say that the, I think the first time I saw this, whenever, like, that come back, comes back in as, like, the main thing that, like, gets Courtney, like, destroyed, Did you is a really clever plot development. Okay. I remember the first time I saw it, I thought for sure that it was going to be the picture, because we see Julie and Zach go looking for it later, and then you can't find it, but you uh, see wait. it in the gutter. <laughs> I laughed at that, too, because they go to look for the camera. I'm like, hasn't it been a couple days? Like, why would the broken camera still be there? Yeah, she's like, oh, it's not here. And she she just stands in place. (laughs) Like, girl, get on your hands and knees. Maybe look about a meter away. That bitch ain't getting on her hands and knees in that nasty-ass concrete. Or or maybe she can't in those platform shoes and tight, tight jeans. Oh, my God. The shoes in this movie. I just... 
Yeah. If you're a foot fetishist, this is a good movie for you. Uh, so really what we have to address is that Fern needs to be taken care of. So she is recruited by Courtney for a makeover montage in exchange for her silence. And this is so cool. This whole makeover sequence with the spinning Judy Greer head is... It's so kooky. It's, it's so weird i feel like this would be a part where like if people weren't into what this movie was selling them this would be like okay i'm done with this movie a hundred percent like if you're watching this section and you're not responding to the fact that they're doing like a frankenstein makeover yeah. via beetlejuice like what the fuck planet yeah, are you on? No, get I, off the movie because you're obviously not the right demographic. I was thinking Tim Burton too. Like honestly, like, during the all the whole thing, I was like, oh, or like Edward Scissorhands. Like there's like a there's, yeah, a, yeah, there's yeah. like a medical. Yeah, absolutely for sure. Yeah, I was trying to think if he was homaging something like older, like older cinema, but I, I don't know. To be honest, I was a hundred percent Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, so maybe that's it. Darren, Stein, let us know. I know you're listening. I'm using my sexy voice. We don't know if he's listening. To be honest. I 100% guarantee you he is. Okay, so we then do a second go-around of the hallway walk scene, only this time Julie and Liz have been replaced by a mysterious new girl, Fern's alter ego, a statuesque blonde who is dubbed Violet by okay, Courtney. This is my thing with this. So it appears... So Carol came is like... Fern Mayo has been absent for several days, so... <laughs> we also have a new student who mysteriously <laughs> appeared at the exact same time. <laughs> and, like, so, okay, so Fern's missing, and, like, no one notices. That makes sense, because she's mm -hmm. a nobody, right? Sure. But then Violet comes in, and she's just going to classes with no new student paperwork. Or, presumably, she's going to all of Fern's classes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or she's not going to school. She's just on the like in the, on the front of the school on her car, dancing and posing. Yeah, just rocking the fuck out as one does. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I, I mean, I feel like this is commentary by Stein. I'm not sure if he implicitly meant to do this or if he was just like too busy focusing on the girls. But I feel like all of the adults in this movie are so dumb and clueless. And if it is by design, then it's all the more fantastic because parents in YA properties are so stupid and. Like, they're both obsolete, and they're completely not invested in their children's lives most of the time. Mm -hmm. So this just all makes sense. Like, they may have good intentions, but they literally have no fucking clue what's happening in this I high mean, school. Even, I know we haven't mentioned it yet, but even Pam Greer, it's like, oh, she, she seems smart, but then, mm -hmm. I mean, granted, Courtney has a very elaborate plan <laughs> to get semen inside Liz's cooch, but... I guess <laughs> Doesn't I, I, make we need to we need to talk about how like the logistics <laughs> of how this no, fake rape would work i i was i, I was also confused so yes let, let's move on <laughs> yeah okay we'll we'll get there we're getting there yeah so the girls give violet the 411 on being popular in a series of perfectly executed monologues well, Pam Greer is briefly introduced as Detective Vera Cruz. She's really good. She is really good. And again, you, you just kind of wish that she had more to do because she kind of stomps around, she interviews people, and then she just fucks off for the rest of the movie. Well, yeah, because basically, like, what... Well, but because the movie's so short. I mean, hey, yeah. it's 87 minutes, which isn't that short, but, like... But there's obviously stuff missing. Yes, absolutely. And because you have to... Maybe they only had Pam Greer for a certain number of days. I don't know. I did read a thing that where apparently, like, it's in her contract that she has to do all of her own hair. Oh, really? Because her hair ain't great in this. Well, she's wearing three wigs. 
Are they all on top of each other? I don't. Maybe there was a plan to do like three or two wig reveals or something at some point, but like they just didn't have the budget for it. <laughs> Can you imagine? She's like, she slams the jawbreaker on the table and then she whips off a wig. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell me the truth or I'll do it again. Second wig reveal. Like literally, Pam Greer is giving you RuPaul realness before you even knew you wanted it, America. It's so good. Okay. In the wake of her disagreement with Courtney, Julie has been socially ostracized. But it's okay because she just immediately falls in with drama student Zach, who is played by Chad Christ. Lots to, uh, well, drama students are gay. All of them are gay. Always gay. Yeah. I could have done without that. And even though I appreciate that we're talking about bitchy high school girls, and this is really more a condemnation of them and their stereotypes, it bristles every time I watch this. This is something I don't really think we've discussed this, which I'm shocked we haven't. But it's it's when there's homophobia in a film that's cre- that's created by a queer people. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, I get it. It's a stereotype, you know, like it, it, yeah. it, like drama students, like it, it, obviously. But but then you have the one really effeminate guy that's in it for like a scene. Oh uh, yeah. I don't know. Like it it rubs me the wrong way. But again, 1999. Like looking at it through those lenses. But it's just like again, when you when you have Darren Stein writing and directing this, it's like why even include it? And let me. I guess maybe it's also to like showcase Courtney's villainy too. But a little bit. I. I think part of it is that everyone who isn't part of this central foursome, and I'm kicking out Liz so that we can bring Fern Violet into that. Yeah. Everybody else is really just a caricature. And you could argue like the girls themselves are even caricatures, but like we get so little of everybody else that they are all just a stereotype of whatever they are. So like the cheerleader is the most cheerleader ever. The goth girl is just the most goth girl ever. And the same with the effeminate, uh, you know, gay guy in drama. It doesn't. I don't know that that excuses it. I certainly don't like it. But I think at the end of the day, it was like everybody at this high school is kind of a piece of shit, which is why the girls can be so terrible and they still get voted prom queen because power begets meanness and everybody's looking for their slice of that pie. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I'll buy into it. And like you, yeah. I mean, I don't particularly like it. And that may just be, you know, like... Me being a theater kid, a drama kid in high school, like, bringing back memories. Uh, was your hair that bad? No. God, no. Because <laughs> um, I was a teenager in the 2000s. Uh, highlights. Ooh, I'm just imagining a lot of, like, greasy hair gel. No, 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 no. I don't use product in my hair. Um, s- s- I think sticky is my least favorite tactile sensation, so I don't like touching gel. Uh, fair, fair. It's really gross. So I just get out of the shower and bl- towel dry it and leave. O- or my mom would straighten it for me. Aww. Yeah, she would straighten my hair at the kitchen island while I ate breakfast. Okay, I have questions. <laughs> if you have questions How... about that, you can tweet me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll come back to that later. <laughs> okay, so Courtney, meanwhile, is seducing hunky idiot Dane Sanders, Ethan Erickson, forcing him to fillet a big stick in this... a scene that confirms my homosexuality. No, I. Th- this is one of the first scenes of a movie that i remember getting a boner over oh my god i mean kind of how can you not right well yeah because like and there's it's there's not even any sex in it but it the moment when she's like i forgot how to do it can you Mm -hmm. show me 
and his tongue is just flicking it like yeah it's so crazy and sexy and i don't know how this made it in the movie like i don't know how the studio watched this and was like uh darren and he's like what guys it's just a guy literally eating a lollipop like (laughs) it's not a big deal what's the problem but i do love that it's like these are our two dichotomies right we've got effeminate you know we we've got effeminate drama geek we've got the the bitchy girls who are talking about lesbians at the end and then we've got this scene which is i mean I, I keep feeling like I, I'm i saying iconic far too often in no, this I know. episode. But but like, it is, no, but it, it this, is iconic. Yeah. Because you have your female villain who, uh, and maybe this is problematic for me to say, so you can like kind of check me. But it's like, you have your female villain essentially taking on the male role in this sex scene. And oh, um, 100%. I want to use the word emasculating the man, though, by making him give a blowjob to this popsicle. But that that's not right. Because it's, it's like... It, it's saying, okay, well, if a man gives a blowjob, then it is emasculating him, which isn't the case. Mm. But it's maybe the public perception of emasculation, you know? Like, obviously, I know sucking a dick isn't emasculating because I'm still a man. But that's, like, um, someone watching that, like, a straight person watching the scene, if they haven't left the theater already. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's not quite the right term because usually there's a shame element in emasculation, right. right? Like, you're taking a person down a peg, whereas in this case, it's almost like she's opening him up because we see him and he actually looks like he's enjoying it. Oh, 100%. But, uh, he does. Um, I think the idea is supposed to be that he's enjoying the fact that he's about to get blown, but he's really into that big stick. Yeah. I mean, there's there's maybe a little bit of questioning in Dane's future. He just doesn't know it yet. There, all right. I agree. So I was going to bring up questioning to, obviously, with Violet and mm-hmm. Liz. Yep, 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 yep. We're about to get there. Well, no, no, but, but like... Uh, Fern's first scene with Miss Sherwood, where she's describing Liz, is full of sexual yeah. tension. Well, and even the way that she talks about Liz's name, like she's perfect, and you're the like, cats oh, meow. there's like a yeah, there's like some sexual connotations to pussy there. Oh, oh my God, Joe, you're gonna be just so disappointed in me. I didn't make that connection. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you picked up on the fact that she's probably more than just interested in Liz because she admires her. The carpet muncher that they like to throw out at the end of the movie? Yeah, right. I, I, I will admit, no, when when, when Julie Vinge says, carpet munchers, I laughed really hard, even though that's a bad term. It's terrible. It reminds me of But I'm a Cheerleader, where it's like both movies that get a laugh out of making fun of gay people, but it's because the term itself is just so ridiculous. It's so dumb. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, okay. Yeah. Okay, so the police come to each individual house, they inform everybody that Liz is dead, and then we get a series of cross-cut interviews of the three girls by Vera, and Courtney's really the only one who holds her own. Marcy and Julie are just, like, fucking terrible at it. Well, yeah, I love she's like, have you ever seen a jawbreaker? No. 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 (laughs) What are you, stupid? (laughs) And then you got Courtney. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, wig reveal. Well, no, because then she's, yeah, because Pam Gray's doing the overacting and she's like, it'll take a lot of licks to get one of these down. And then she like licks it and then bam, knocks on the yeah. table. Not going to lie, that line rings a little too true to me because my only childhood memory of a jawbreaker is that I basically just licked it until my tongue bled. Like actually bled? Yeah. 
like I cut up my tongue on the because it, it as you start to like get towards the center. Girl, I have licked. A, I know what a, I've I've eaten several. Okay, let me break before. down how a jawbreaker works for you. <laughs> I, I get it. Is something wrong with your tongue? No, there was like a bumpy parts in the jawbreaker, and it cut up my tongue because I maybe maybe I, I was think, just a little too aggressive, like Dane. Maybe so. <laughs> you sucked that big stick too hard. <laughs> Mom, I have something to tell you. My tongue is bleeding, and also I'm a homosexual. <laughs> I just I feel like I need to talk to Brian about that. Or at least a therapist, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess his dick probably doesn't have, like, hard bumps on it, so you're not, like, tongue bleeding on it. But still, I don't know, man. Mm, I haven't found any, but I'll check after the recording, and I'll let you know. <laughs> Okay, we've reached like a level where it's like almost like I feel like you're my brother. So the thought of you having sex is Just absolutely repulsive to you. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. It's really weird. Like, I don't want to say great. repulsive. That makes me feel great. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That's a strong word. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm sorry. No, it's I okay. Go back to slut shaming me. I appreciate. <laughs> No, I'm not slut shaming you. I just think you have a problem with your tongue. Yeah, if people want to get a hold of me on Twitter afterwards to talk about my tongue problems, you know, feel free to just at me. I'm at B, still my remote. That's a letter B. Okay, so the next day, the school grieves the loss of Perfect Liz. Uh, this is actually my favorite shot in the film. Uh, so it's a tableau of everybody just silently crying in the hallway. Oh, and Julie's and walking Julie down. And Julie walks down. Although it's yeah. like, it's, I don't even know what to call it, but it's like almost like a time ellipsis because you don't see her do the whole thing. And it's beautiful and I love it. Mm-hmm. And then Vera and Miss Sherwood discover that Fern has been absent for several days. <laughs> now that you mention it, Fern's been absent for several days in, in a Carol Kane voice, obviously. I also love how uh, she uses the word tardy because that's kind of one of my favorite words. Tardy. People are never okay. late. They're always tardy. Because <laughs> it's so old fashioned. Uh, we briefly see how Violet is infiltrating the popular circles at school. So she's befriending head cheerleader Brenda, or sorry, just cheerleader, because she becomes head cheerleader. I know I touched on this before, but I just her exact quote for this fucking intercom. Elizabeth mm-hmm. Purr, a well-known senior at Reagan High, was found dead in her home, apparently suffering from acute asphyxiation. Like, no, no. <laughs> announced... no to that last part. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, I, I've never noticed that before. And so like, whenever I heard it, I was like, what?! also we have grief counselors available for all of you because i have just traumatized all of you now (laughs) i mean she might as well say she had a big old dick in her pussy and that's what caused her to choke on it she's playing sex games a well-known and also problematically kinky girl was found (laughs) dead in her room yeah okay so the girls zero in on Zach as a potential romantic conquest for Violet, even though he and Julie are going out, and that's the least interesting part of the movie, so blah, blah, yep. blah. When brought in for questioning by Vera, Violet outlines her relationship with Liz in an extended monologue that sounds an awful lot like romantic love. Not to be outdone, Courtney then confesses to Vera that Liz has a secret craving for anonymous sex with men, which is overlaid with images of Courtney fucking Marilyn Manson, rocking a full-blown porn stash. Which and is apparently ick. this is the, the sex scene here is what gave the film an NC-17 rating, so they had to cut down the number of thrusts to get the R rating. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the number of thrusts before on this podcast. I love the fact that there is a probably mildly religious, probably white, probably middle to upper class woman in the MPAA. <laughs> probably lives in like Iowa or maybe like Michigan. And she has to go and like watch a movie and be like, 
that is one thrust too many, sir. This is an NC-17 <laughs> NC film. <laughs> like, do better with your life, members of the MPAA, because you guys are a bunch of fucking hypocrites. So Violet continues her social ascent. She is now both head cheerleader and star of the school play, and she has also seduced a mechanic for some over-the-top action to apparently get a red Corvette with the license plate. I was very confused by this, but yes, (laughs) that, 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 that seems to be what happens. I'm like, wow, if it's that easy to get a nice car, I feel like there would be a lot more gays driving really nice cars. Did you read, hey, again, this is McGowan, uh, where she basically, like, because Darren Stein was like, yeah, when, when Judy Greer was in costume as Fern, like, people did ignore her. But then when she was Violet, people didn't. And Rose McGowan goes, well, she was very much Violet with me. And I was hmm. like, oh, that, hmm, okay. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> what well, what was happening on this set? <laughs> I don't know. Or is she saying like the two of them clashed heads? Sorry, I read that as a sexual statement, but now I'm realizing you're referencing it probably as the two of them are having cat fights. Yeah, and I mean like because it's in one of these interviews. I think it's the Days Digital article that I found. But um, yeah, it's like and, and Darren kind of goes up and like says something about how oh like you know like when you're playing the parts like sometimes like you just get into it. But I got the impression based on her quote that yes i that there was maybe some like rose mcgowan did not have the best impression of judy greer but again i could be just making that up but just like the way the article was phrased and the way the quote was put in here like like context it was that's the vibe that i got i mean again we're we're an Anne rice situation again here Right. I don't know, because there's also some choice quotes about Rose McGowan in the Vice oral history on this film, in which Rebecca Gayhart and Julie Benz both throw Rose McGowan under the bus for not helping to carry the weight of Liz's oh, yeah. body. <laughs> Where Rose was like, oh, we were in heels and it was just so hot. And she was like, she was playing dead like she was dead weight and the other two girls are like no she 100 percent didn't do well, any lifting and we had to do the whole thing the important thing with that interview though is it says that the that those interviews were conducted over the course of a year so i think they were mm. all done separately so i think they asked them all the same questions and all pulled right. the quotes of each interview so i don't think that they like got to know what each other said until the article came out Oh, I guarantee it. But that means we're probably also getting some half-truths and maybe mm-hmm. full truths, depending on who we're listening to. Yeah. Which is why, if we had the commentary... That's why we need this audio everyone... commentary. I know. <laughs> but Rose McGowan's not on it, which really sucks, but that's fine. Yeah. I mean, given some of her recent situations, I'm not entirely surprised. No, not at all. But it would have been nice, but it's fine. It's true. Yeah. Uh, so, Julie confesses the whole sordid affair to Zach in an unnecessary recap of the film. Yep. I hate it when films do this. Like, we've been watching, we don't need you to tell this, us it yeah, again. You can just, like, cut, like, do a fade to, like, them in, like, slightly different positions where it's like, okay, cool, she's just told him the whole story. We get it. Yeah. Courtney and Violet come to mirror-breaking blows, and Violet threatens to expose her and tell the truth about the whole thing. And Julie tries to do this by going to Vera, but of course she hears about the story that Courtney has cooked up, so that doesn't work. And then when Violet, or rather even before Violet can do anything, she is disgraced by a smear campaign that exposes her as Fern Mayo to the entire school. I love the plan. It's just, who is Violet? And it's a picture of Fern. Which is amusing because it assumes that people would recognize Fern, despite the fact that no one seemed to recognize her. Well, yeah, she's been missing from school. 
<laughs> it's like maybe it should have been on all of the milk cans or something like i'm just imagining courtney going at her because as convoluted as her fucking plans are just going to make milk cans uh, like put her face on a milk carton and yeah. like do that that's your who is violet <laughs> she's just distributing them around like the cafeteria like, when you have some milk <laughs> when julie and zach find fern like laying on the floor of the hallway and she's like blanketed in the posters i did love that it's like somebody <laughs> took the time to cover her up after she curled into a fetal position <laughs> it's so good it's and she like faints so many times in this movie like, okay, like no one like they just left her in the middle of the hallway it's ridiculous yeah i do love when she faints earlier and she's taken to the nurse mm-hmm. and like when she busts out of the nurse office because she you know she gets referred to as fern and she's like gah she's just got like a perfectly wrapped bandage with like a spot of blood on the forehead <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, with her, like, bright pink suit, too. Uh, I love the costume progression of Judy Greer throughout this movie. Oh, yeah. Where she, you know, obviously with Fern, she's very dowdy and plain. And then when she gets the makeover, she starts and she's just kind of looking like she fits in with the other girls. And then she just gets progressively, like, I don't want to say skanky because it sounds shamey, but, like, it's more halter tops. It's, like, see-through, transparent well, yeah because this is like it's like a midriff bearing like not a crop top but it's like it's not as low as it should be i mean it should be that that sounds weird to say should and then yeah these high-waisted like pink mom pants no okay so that's a reference to greece because that's one of the inspirations for the film oh yeah that's where the peachy fucking king comes from yeah man because this movie is basically 50s like headbands and poodle skirts and cardigans and that kind of stuff then mixed with pvc punk from the 80s and early 90s and you see and you wonder why tristar wanted to take a safe bet and give more money to can't hardly wait (laughs) They had that Jennifer Love fucking Hewitt. That movie actually has a great cast. I love that movie. Maybe not super well known at the time, but I mean, you had Seth Green, Laura Ambrose, Ethan Embry, fucking Mm -hmm. Melissa John Hart's in that movie. Wait. Yes, she is. She's the nerd. Yeah, for a hot second. Hot second. She's the yearbook girl. Anyway, sorry. Not that movie. Okay. So like every high school movie, the plot culminates at prom where Julie, Zach, and Fern gang up to take Courtney down. And this is all done conveniently because Julie's mom, played by PJ Souls, uh, And her dad is William Cat, which is nuts. Like, I, I never noticed that before. Never noticed that. I hadn't either. I saw on your cheat sheet that, like, all of the adults have been associated with one of the Carrie production. <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, I never recognize that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so listeners, um, Liz's mom is PJ Souls, who played um, Norma in Carrie. She's also Linda in Halloween. Um, and her dad's played by William Catt, who plays Tommy Ross in Halloween. And of course, Judy Greer would go on to play the gym teacher in the remake of Carrie. I love it. I love this kind of stuff. Like, yeah. it's kind of like stunt casting, but it's also not. Like, it's just acknowledging, hey, these are important horror people, and they're going to bring a certain je ne sais quoi to the people who recognize them. Well, yeah. And then, of course, yeah, Charlotte Ayana in Rage Carrie 2. But then, of course, with Scream, you got Rose McGowan in Scream 1 and Rebecca Gayhart in Scream 2. So it's just poor Julie Benz who... She got Buffy, man. Yeah. Oh, she's in Saw 5, too. Let's that's not. <laughs> no. She's the best part of that movie, but yeah, it's her and Megan Good doing their all they can. Okay, so Julie is delivered this smoking gun inadvertently. She gets the birthday card that has Courtney's confession in it. She didn't even realize she had it, and then she's like, okay, shit, we gotta get to prom. So... As the Donnas rock the mic, you would not know who they are, but another famous, like, all-girl rock group. Mm-hmm. If you say so. It's like them and Letters to Cleo. Yeah. 
I know letters to the Cleo, but I also watched things I hate about you like all the time as a kid. Ah, okay. Uh, so the three of them, Julie, Zach, and Fern, they link the card up to the PA system and they expose Courtney as the culprit just as she accepts her title as prom queen. Dane abandons her immediately because he's stupid, but he's smart enough to realize that's not going to go down well. And then Julie blows her a slow motion eat shit. This kiss. no, this, this so <laughs> this this moment, and then when she like puts Courtney up against the locker after Violet gets like hate crimed, that that's Rebecca Gayhart's best scenes in this movie. And of course, this is coming a year after Urban Legend, which we all know like she's mm-hmm. the best part of that movie, and she gets to really cut loose. It is unfortunate to see her like having to play the straight girl in this movie. Yeah, she's playing the Noxema girl. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But her eat shit, and then she does that wave. Yeah. Is... It's lovely. Uh, Darren Stein refers to this movie. He says it's very cunty. And... <laughs> <laughs> it is your spirit animal trace. I know. I want to hang out with Darren Stein so hard. Also, right? saw pictures of him during the filming of this movie. He was a treat. He looks like a baby. <laughs> I know. That's He's why so I, young. I, that's why I find him attractive. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, no, but like, the, the moment of her doing that wave and it's the slow motion. Oh, it's. I'm so happy that she gets that moment in this movie because she doesn't really have anything else like that. No, it's true. Yeah, I mean, Julie's just such a blando for the majority that it's nice that when she actually gets her moment, she does... Well, I mean, you could say that she stoops a little bit to Courtney's level by being a bit cunty, but at this point, you're sort of like, yeah, okay, take her down. Yeah, yeah, it's... And I love the simplicity and how quick this prom scene happens like it's oh, just yeah thank god it's not drawn out no no it, it it's the perfect ending like it's a it's great sorry I, i'm cutting ahead though go ahead no no i mean because really we're at the end of the movie like veracruz is gone we never get any kind of closure about the fern mayo violet situation no. <laughs> uh like we don't even find out if courtney gets charged this is our climax it is literally Courtney getting dressed down in front of all of her peers. She makes her way tear-stained through the crowd, and people throw corsages at her in slow motion. She is stoned with corsages. I believe that's a Roger Ebert quote. (sighs) I mean, I'm sure he thought that was clever. But what I like about this, though, so like, because the camera, so first of all, it's this, it's it's Carrie because she's. I was going to say this is plug it up, man. Yes, no, no, it's they're all going to laugh at you because she's looking at them and it's like kind of a slow motion. He doesn't do the camera trick, the the kaleidoscope trick. Thank God, but it's the slow motion because in Carrie, it's like there's a it's PJ Souls is the first one to start laughing and it's like the slow motion laughing. Um, With this, it's the girl that just goes that. Bitch! <laughs> I also love that this one sentence is, I mean, okay, I get it. Like, it's her saying, I killed Liz, but it's like, no one's like, what? Like, oh, that could have been doctored? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, whatever. It's I'm Like, it sounds like something you would say about, like, a friend while they went to the bathroom at brunch. Like, oh, I'm going to fucking kill that asshole. And it's like, oh, I just captured that on a birthday card. I'm going to play this later and get you stoned with corsages. Exactly. But what I love about this, though, is that when she starts going down the stairs and, like, walking through the floor, it's like mm-hmm. she's on a skateboard being wheeled because she is floating through the, the like it doesn't look like she's taking steps and i think that's really cool yeah yeah uh apparently they just they threw her onto the um the camera tracking so they took off the camera and they put her onto it oh. and then they dragged her through the crud so it looks like she's floating and then we get this amazing face or something of rose mcgowan mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So Julie takes her picture with the Polaroid as Frank Sinatra's young at heart plays. And Mm -hmm. Courtney is just destroyed. Her eye makeup has like gone all the way down her face and her hair is in tumbleweeds and the silver thing has like fallen out and she just (laughs) looks a mess. (laughs) Well, apparently it, sorry, it's a headband. Yeah. She's like, Julie! I love that she acts like, oh, Julie, my friend, like you're going to save me. It's like, (laughs) bitch, no. (laughs) I thought that, I I think it every time. I'm like, why would she even think that Julie would sympathize with her? And then of course we get that great, ugh, and yes. then, boom. <laughs> it's like the la- the film's last great sound effect. I don't even know if Rose McGowan actually made it. I'd love to it, know if it was like an ADR kind of it thing. Sound, it, it sounds very ADR'd, but maybe not. Who knows? It, it had like a Wilhelm scream kind of sound to it. Yeah, and then uh, that's the picture from the school yearbook. And then the book closes. And that is the end of Jawbreaker. <sighs> it's so good. It's really good. It's definitely a movie that I've come to appreciate more um, the more I've seen it, and again, like I've seen it many, many times on USA, on USA, cut for television. But I actually think the big stick scene was always in there, so they they never cut the big stick scene, which I thought was very surprising. Hmm. Um, but it is important to know though, the, this movie has a very lengthy legacy. Obviously, we got the cult following; it's embraced by the gay community. There was a musical adaptation in 2013, uh, and yes. A TV series has been announced. Hmm. Okay, so it was announced back in, what, 2017? Yes, it's been yeah. almost three years since it's been I don't, announced. I don't think anything's going to happen there. I know. It reimagines a television series for E! Um, with Darren Stein going to write and produce it. So Darren Stein, we know you're listening. Let us know about the update. Here, here's what I'm wondering. Did you watch the Heathers TV show? I watched the pilot. And to be honest, I that's immediately where my head went to i was like if the heathers tv show can't get off the ground in this day and age like because of the controversy they're not going to do this movie granted heathers was like yeah i mean uh, here i'm going to plug this really quick so the pilot of heathers is not very good because it's very much trying it's copying a lot of heathers like especially the dialogue it's terrible they only showed the first nine episodes and didn't show the 10th one i did secure the 10th one through not illegal purposes. Yep. I don't think they even showed it though. They didn't. They only show the pilot, or no? They leaked the pilot to try to drum up interest, and then they kept canceling the show because there was a school shooting in the U.S. Every time, every time it was going to come out. Yeah, they showed the pilot, shooting. and then they were like, "Cool, it's going to actually air a month from now." But then, yeah, a shooting happened. They couldn't do it. Then they postponed it, and then they were like, they dumped all nine yeah, they, episodes like yeah. in a week. But not um, the finale. But not the finale because... Okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to spoil this for you. Okay. It gets better. It's not a great show, but it actually picks up considerably after the pilot. But mm-hmm. what it does really well is it makes Veronica the JD character. She's yeah. crazy. She's okay. insane. And it does end with her... And the reason they didn't show the finale is because it ends with her and JD blowing up the school, killing everyone. Ooh, tragedy girl stuff. No, absolutely. And so... But but it ends with a surrealistic, like, um, of all of them in heaven. And in the school, everything's white, but they lock Veronica out. So she's in hell, quote-unquote, because everyone else is, like, living in the afterlife at prom, and she's stuck outside looking in. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. It is really cool. And, of course, you have your genderqueer Heather and, like, whatever, yeah. the, you know, the, the main Heather's, like, the big girl. Oh, and that was, like, the twist at the end of the pilot, you know, is that like she didn't really die. It gets better after the pilot, and I was surprised. And I totally see why they didn't show the finale, but mm-hmm. it goes places that I didn't think it was going to go, and it's worth a watch. Yeah. 
I remember the critics were very savage about it Ooh, when yeah. they were reviewing. I think they only got to see the pilot and the the twist that uh, Heather has not actually been murdered is revealed at the end of the pilot, but people didn't feel like it was enough to save it. And I don't know, it's a tough sell in this day and age, but at the same time, the idea of teens killing other teens like trying to shelve that because of sensitivity issues because of what's happening with rich assholes who like their guns too much like i don't i obviously understand the correlation but i think that it's alarmist and completely bullshit and it really harkens back to the false controversy that came up around that movie the hunt earlier this year where oh god you know, know like it's that that false outrage where you're like what you're talking about is not the actual issue like teens killing teens is happening but this tv show like it's commentary it's entertainment and commentary it's not actually going to increase teen murders it's like with 9-11 though when any movie with a plane got delayed even the fucking gwyneth paltrow christina applegate movie view from the top which is a Uh, comedy and it's not good but it's really cute got postponed for like a year because of 9-11 yeah did you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable what did i say that's a joke from View from the Top. Oh, sorry. Yes, I did get That's that. That's the only thing I remember from that movie. Oh, I remember Christina Applegate bashing Gwyneth Paltrow's head in with a giant bread roll. Oh, gosh. I might have to revisit it then. There's a huge cat fight on the plane. It's really funny. Nice. Okay. It also makes you think that living as a flight attendant, like, you can be, like, rich. <laughs> oh. mm. um, so it's high escapism. <laughs> but anyway, no. So going back to Jarbrook, though, I don't think this would run into the same issues as Heather's because the... the it's just the one murder. It's the one where it's not really about guns or, like, you know, blowing up a school. and so, I mean, although I guess they could do that. No, yeah, I think they'd have to keep the the death as something, like, very, like, high camp or just ridiculous as opposed to something like, oops, I accidentally stabbed you or shot you. Yes, but it is interesting that both... I haven't heard the soundtrack to this musical. I don't know if it's on iTunes. I might look after this. Um, but this and Mean Girls and Heather's all have musicals. Of course, only Mean Girls went to Broadway. <laughs> yeah. And then I think closed. I don't even think it's continued. I hope it tours. I want to. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I did see Heather's because Heather's was off Broadway, but it toured. Um, and it's like a community theater production, but it was still really good. Mm. Um I mean, yeah, I, no. all of these should always get musicals. Like, Carrie got a fucking musical. So, oh, yeah. Like, release them i want to see them i really want to see that showgirls <laughs> oh god musical. the showgirls musical yes absolutely <laughs> uh, but no i mean yeah. I, I would love I, I i hopefully jawbreaker is available i mean it, it was in 2013 so surely it's a thing but yeah so i am proud of this film's legacy that it's that it's got it's always intri- funny to me when something like this happens and i feel like it's a lot of these late 90s things that found life on tv reruns or reruns on tv or on on home video i mean even the the cover art for this film like i've never seen the box and blockbusters it's very striking because it's colorful and goofy with the fucking legs coming out of the pile of jawbreakers just like this movie is it's great i hope that darren stein is getting some financial benefits from that (laughs) oh god i I hope so I don't know. If nothing else, this proves that he has a really quirky sensibility. But I think the comedy in this film actually plays better nowadays than it did back in 99. And I'm really frustrated that we haven't seen more things from him because this movie confirms to me that he would be great at delivering something that i think would be really successful nowadays i 100 percent agree and that's what i mean like because when i first saw gbf like i i 
I had this, like, again, like, like I said at the beginning of the episode, like, this kind of stigma about independent gay cinema where I was like, oh, this isn't going to be very good. And I was ple- very pleasantly surprised with it and how much heart that movie had. And so after seeing that even, and again, knowing he didn't write it, I, yeah, I, I, I what, what, what are you doing, man? Like, make another movie. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's not his choice, but uh, yeah. yeah, like, go and berate some people and be like, hey, give me some money so I can make some fucking new stuff because people are clamoring for it. Exactly. But if he doesn't make anything in the future, at least he's made a hallmark of teen cinema. There we go. Yeah. Which has honestly only gotten better with age. Like, the fact that it's found a cult fan base and people love to talk about this film and the fashion has really gone on and become almost cutting edge at this point. Yes. I think it's a testament to what he managed to do with this film. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen with a film. And if it's a failure, then at at the theater, which this one was just, yeah, people will find it. People will find it, and that's, you know, we've covered a lot of movies like that that have had a legacy like that, of varying degrees of quality, of course, but... This is true. But yeah, so, um, okay, well, do you have a game? I do. It's very short, but I think it's going to be a very fun one. Okay. So there was another teen film with a badass bitch that was released in 1999. You missed it when you were trying to do your roundup earlier, It's a little film called Cruel Intentions. Oh, how did I miss that? So your game, short and sweet, I'd like to know who would win the battle of the bitches, Courtney or... Catherine. Catherine. Uh, Catherine. That's not even looking hard. I think so. No, Courtney, as we've already discussed, misses important things. She is quick on her feet, but she's not good... I guess we didn't really discuss, too, the logistics of this rape scene, but it's totally... Uh, not the rape scene, but like the... Um, like, I, I'm sorry. It's turkey baster. That's all it's got to be, right? Yeah, but uh, so, so he comes inside of her, she sticks the turkey baster inside, sucks the cum out of her somehow, and then puts it in... Liz. Liz. But also has to break the hymen because Liz is a confirmed virgin. Right. And also, though, she's dead and the body's not smelling yet. Yeah, because this is not even the same day. Yeah... Listeners, there's your game. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not even kidding. T- tweet us, Facebook us, uh, email us. I want you to describe how this plan works. <laughs> God, this is like human centipedes level. Like, I really please draw know. it for us in cartoon form. But anyway, um, no, I I think that Catherine has money at her disposal, and she, I, minus her coke habit, which I think would actually make her more alert. She, I think she's smarter. I think she's like Courtney is good at the verbal barbs, but I think that Catherine is smarter in the end. Okay, uh, I'm gonna disagree. I think that Courtney, well, yes, she's not quite as good at following through on her plans. I feel like the coke would be a big problem for Catherine, and because she is she a can't, functioning cokehead, but she can't sexually control. Courtney the way that she can all of the men in the cruel intentions world so I think that Courtney would find a way to get around her much the way she does with Violet that's true because because yeah the whole time she's trying to fuck over Reese Witherspoon and she has to use the men to do it Mm -hmm. that makes sense um so she'd maybe have to use like Ethan or uh whatever Zach's boring name is yeah if y'all have never seen it, y'all should watch Dangerous Liaisons, uh, which is what Cruel Intentions is based on, where Glenn Close plays the Sarah Michelle Geller role, and she's fantastic. Yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer is the other one, right? Michelle Pfeiffer's Reese Witherspoon, John Malkovich is 
Ryan Phillippe, Uma Thurman is Selma Blair, oh, really? and Keanu Reeves is Sean Patrick Thomas. Okay. I've actually never seen him. Oh my god, it's so good. I mean, it's set in 17th century France or whatever, so it's like a period piece, but it is really, really good. I mean, the plot's exactly the same, so it's really funny to watch it, and like, if you've seen Cruel Intentions first, which I had at the time, to see, oh, like, I see what they're doing here. Very young Uma Thurman. She's like 17. Right. Anyway, okay, well, I think that'll wrap up our discussion of Jawbreaker then. A very unorthodox, but I feel appropriate choice for us on this podcast. Love it. I make no apologies. <laughs> Before we announce what we're covering next week, well, if you want to reach us on Twitter, we've already plugged this, but we're going to do it again. You can reach me at Traced Thurman. And I am at B, still my remote. That's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets. You can also email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com or check out our Facebook group. Please leave us a review on iTunes. We haven't had any in a while and we love getting five-star reviews and only five-star reviews from you lovely people. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'd rather have the comment than, than just the star, but sure. Yeah, sure. If you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films like Doctor Sleep and the Nicolas Cage versus a Jaguar on a Boat movie Primal, which, as of this recording, I've seen and Joe is not, but um, yeah, uh, listen to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are we covering next week, Joe? All right, so we're heading towards the end of the year, but we're not quite ready for the Christmas season. We're inching there, so I thought I would take us back to, I don't even know. Um, yeah, this is new for us. This is new, yeah. So it's not the TV show, but we are headed into X-Files territory to discuss the second film called I Want to Believe. Well, it's X-Files, I Want to Believe. It's not just called I Want to Believe, but... It's a very special episode because it's our 50th episode. Oh, right. That also. <laughs> Why did we pick this movie for our 50th episode? I'm sure. I don't know. I don't think we planned it. That's why. <laughs> so trust us, for our 100th episode next year, we did, we're going to plan that better. Yeah. But we will have a very special guest next week. And it's I promise it's not, not anyone any of you expect. But it'll still be really fun. Yes, I'm excited. I'm well I'm excited for the conversation and I'm not excited for this movie I've seen I, I've not seen this show I've seen like a couple episodes of the show and I didn't stick with it but um I did see this movie but I saw both movies in theaters actually and I remember thinking the second one was fine even after reading all the terrible reviews for it yeah the Mulder Scully stuff is good and it's the movie around them that's not well we will find out next week when everyone tunes in for our 50th episode on X-Files I want to believe but for now we can cross out Jawbreaker Yes, and cross out horror queers. The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.